Open your Bibles, if you would, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to continue on this morning with our study of who Jesus is. But before we go back and read the scriptures, I just want to lay a foundation. Because what I believe with all my heart that God wants to do for us is not to come through this study knowing more theology about who Jesus is. There really is not a whole lot more that you can discover that you don't already know. We're going to see as we read the scriptures that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we've seen as we've looked in Matthew 16, and we'll go back and read it again in a minute, we've seen that, that Peter shares that answer with Jesus by revelation of God, because he says, flesh and blood has not shown that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And we spent one whole time together about just the revelation, that it's a revelation. And we're going to begin to get into, I believe, next week, how you receive that, because there's some things we can do. But one of the things we can do is what I want to show you this morning, we're looking for something beyond what we have. Again, as I've said over and over again, if we were to pass out a piece of paper right now and ask you, who is Jesus? By now, you'd all get the right answer. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's not that information, not the correct answer that changes our life. It's the revelation of that inside of us that changes us. And what this whole series is about and what I believe that God is about always with us, but especially right now, is about bringing about change. When we want to bring change into somebody's life, we tell them what to do. Oh, come on, wives and husbands. <laughs> you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to stop doing this, and we're very good on what they need to do. See, I, this is a little sidetrack, but it's worth it. Edwin Lewis Cole, when we used to do the men's series here based on his teachings, he had this wonderful principle. It was wonderful to hear it in the men's meeting. It wasn't so wonderful to go home and apply it. But the principle is this. We tend to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. So we'll measure our spouse or other people by, well, you didn't do this. You didn't meet my, this, my standard. You didn't do it. But, and when it comes to me, well, I'm trying. God, I'm trying hard. But somebody else fails, and we say, God, they didn't fail. They failed at this. They were proud. They were in strife. They did this. They did this. Lord, you need to deal with them. Of course, he's probably already trying to deal with me about that, but I'm trying. I'm working at it. That's my intention. And what Dr. Cole says, we need to reverse that. We need to give people space by looking at how hard they're trying, and we'd be a little more difficult on ourselves by measuring ourselves. In fact, Jesus said that. He said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you trouble, in other words, we need to be, there's an aspect in which we need to be tough on ourselves and not give ourselves so much leeway. On the other hand, we don't want to get under condemnation. Now, that's that little rabbit trail. But the point is this. There's a revelation of who he is that will bring change. We want to change others and ourselves by changing our behavior. God knows that the root of the problem is our nature. And it's interesting as you read Paul's writings, because most of his writings are to churches that he founded, and he is bringing correction to them. But the first half of the letter is reminding them of who they are. And then the correction comes by, since that's who you are, you need to act like who you are. And so God wants to bring change into our life by a greater revelation of who he is. Because it's when you begin to see who he is that you really begin to recognize who you are. Amen. Now, having said that, I want to read this scripture. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it, it, it shows me where I need to be looking for God's answers. 1 Corinthians chapter one, 2, excuse me, verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor as it entered into the heart of man, all those things, the New King James, the, the, the NASB says, the New King James says, those things which God has prepared for those who love him. 
So this verse says that God has prepared things for you. Just that in itself is a wonderful thing to meditate on. Think, just think about it. God has prepared things for you. God has prepared things for you. God has prepared things for you. When our, when our kids are coming home, my wife, this time when they came home, she was busy baking special things that they like, you know, magic bars and cookies and things like that, because her heart wants to have them, to bless them when they come home. So be out of her heart, she's, pre- listen to me carefully, out of her heart of love and desire to bless them, she prepares things for them. And this verse says, God has prepared things for you. Why? For the same reason that Anita prepares things for her kids. Because she loves them and wants to bless them and wants them to be satisfied. And the same motive God has that he has prepared things for you. The things that he's prepared for you he's talking about here is not punishment and judgment. There is such a thing as that, but we won't talk about that right now. But, but God's prepared blessings for you. Think about that. God, the creator of the universe, has prepared some things for me. What are they? Well, we're, that's what we're going to see. How do you find out what they are? The first thing he tells us is the things God has prepared for you are the things you haven't seen yet. So let's put it this way. You ain't seen nothing yet. What, what you think you've seen of God is nothing compared to what he wants to show you. What you think you've seen of, of what God's done for you is nothing compared to what God has done for you and still wants to show you. So it starts with what God wants to show you are things you've never seen before. Now that's important to understand because if you think you got it all together, then you won't see what God has prepared for you. That's why Jesus was frustrated with the Pharisees because they didn't think they needed him because they had it all together because they did all the right things and so their eyes couldn't see what God had prepared for them even when he was standing in front of them. And their ears couldn't hear what God had prepared for them, even when they could literally hear his voice because they had an attitude that they had it all together and were in control. It's called spiritual pride, the most deadly of all sins, not because God measures it at higher, it's because it blinds you to where you are. And when it blinds you to where you are, it blinds you from receiving his help and his grace. So I has not seen... So there are things God has for you that your eyes haven't seen yet and that your ears haven't heard yet, nor, it says, has it even entered into your heart all that God... Oh, listen to that. I love that. All. All that God has prepared for those who love. Do you love Him? Then He has things prepared for you you haven't begun to dream about. So we need to begin to set our dreamer, begin to allow the Spirit of God to dream within you all that God has prepared. Prepared, that means it's done, it's prepared. It's waiting for you to discover here, now, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Okay. He's prepared it. That's great. How do I get it? Well, first of all, you can't receive something you don't believe exists for you. So let's take a look at the next verse. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. So you're not going to grasp what God has for you by things you see with your natural eyes. You're not going to grasp what God has for you because your natural senses perceive it. Because these things that God has for you exist, first of all, in His heart. And so it says, but God has revealed them to us. Excuse me. How? Through His Spirit. 
So this comes by a revelation that the Holy Spirit brings to us. Just as Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter was experiencing what these verses talk about. Even though he had walked with Jesus, he had seen Jesus raise the dead. He, we talked about this before. He'd seen Jesus and heard Jesus, and yet he hadn't, didn't have a revelation yet down inside of who this man is. But God the Father began to give that to him and that revelation came through the Holy Spirit and he is the one that reveals to us the things that God has for us that we haven't seen yet and we haven't heard yet. Oh, it gets better. Oh, this gets so good. Oh, oh. I'm having fun. So you can just stand and sit there. But I'm, I'm, this is going off in me. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. This is what I want you to see. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, even the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. I want to talk for a moment about what he's saying there. This is so powerful. He's saying, first of all, no one knows you better than your own spirit, other than God. Obviously, God knows you better. Your spouse doesn't know you better. Your spirit, your heart, knows the inner parts of you better than anyone else. And he's saying in the same way, the Holy Spirit, who is God's Spirit, knows the inner heart of God better than anyone else. All right, you're with me? So no one knows God's heart and God's intentions better than the Spirit of the living God. You ready? And look at the verse before. Because the verse before says... The things that we don't see, the things that God has for us, verse 10, they're revealed to us through His Spirit. Look at this. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, even the depths of God. As you and I, you sit here and I stand here today, as we're here today and are about to open the Word of God to read scriptures we all know well, this morning... Listen to me carefully. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, is searching actively down deep into the depths of the heart of God the Father to pull up out of the depths of the Father's heart things about the Father's heart and desire and love and intention, uh, intention that He wants you to see. Now think about this. So you're not sitting here hoping God might show you something. I hope our praise and worship was good enough that God might bring His presence down. God's presence is here. First of all, His presence came here when you walked in the door. Because you and I are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Not only that, the Bible says when two or more of us are gathered together in His name, there are, is He in our midst. So not only is He here in us, He's here among us. No matter how well we praised and worshipped. And so we're not sitting here as bumps on a blue chair hoping God's going to show us something if he's favorably disposed to us today. But the scriptures, you only know what God's like through the word. And the word is God telling us what he's like and what his intentions are. And his word tells us that this morning, right now, 
The spirit of the living God is actively searching into the depths of God the Father's heart, listen to me, for something he wants you to see this morning that he has for you. Oh, that's not hitting you. The spirit of God is, you know, (laughs) it was, we're going to the picnic this afternoon and before we left, Anita said, you know, you forgot to bring the cooler down from upstairs. So it's hot upstairs in our attic. And it's right before I need to be leaving for church. So I'm going upstairs. I don't see the cooler. I'm trying to remember. It was probably the last year was the last time we used it. Maybe we threw it out. I don't. So I start rummaging through things up there. I'm searching in the depths of our attic. (laughs) We won't go there. I'm searching the depths of our attic for this cooler that she wants to have so that we can put the food for the picnic. So I'm looking under things. I'm actively looking for something that she wants me to find. The Spirit of God is actively looking under things in God's heart this morning, moving things aside, listen to me, to find out what's in the Father's heart for you personally. This is God now. He has the ability to find something different for each one of you that you need right now that He already has prepared for you. I want to know what it is. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And he said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We've talked about it, what it means There's two things that God says about him there, of who he is. It's what God says about him. First of all, he's the Christ. We've talked about that already. We may not go back and and talk some more about that down the road. But what we're talking about now is the second part of this revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what we're talking about, what does it mean to us that God, that Jesus was the Son of the living God? God, what does that mean to us? And there's three things we're going to look at. We started into this last week. The first thing we're understanding, this is not the first thing it means to us, but the background we looked at last week is the fact that Christ is his, not his last name. That, that the Son of God has always existed. But what happened in Bethlehem is the Son took on flesh and now dwelt among us. But we're looking at, okay, so God took his Son that's always existed and had him take on flesh and dwell among us. What does that mean to us that God chose his son to do this and not some angel? Well, there's a theological reason why it couldn't have been an angel, but I don't want to get into that. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Because there's three things, and we're just going to be looking at one of them today, and we probably won't finish that. John chapter 3, probably the most best-known verse in the Bible. You see it at football games and baseball games on placards. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. 
we see in this well-known verse something we tend to read over quickly. For God so loved, we all know that verse by heart. But let's take it apart. For God. This is something God did. I didn't initiate it. You didn't initiate it. This was God's idea. Never forget that your salvation was God's idea, not your idea. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That in itself, if you meditate on that, that God chose you. Some of you grew up more athletically gifted than others. I was one of those that was less athletically gifted. And I remember they'd choose up teams and I was always sweating out that I'd get chosen. <laughs> I didn't care which team, I just wanted to be chosen to be on a team. And usually I was one of the last to be chosen on the team. You know, it kind of leaves an impression on you. And kids are not always gracious about that, you know. God chose you. God chose you. And you didn't fool him. He knew what he was getting. See, it'd be one thing if we talked him into accepting us, which is what many of us are still trying to do. I'm just going to go with the Holy Spirit this morning. I don't care whether I get through my notes or not. We know this scripture. We may even know John 15, that Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. But we can, have, we can know a scripture but have a different attitude. There are many people still with this underlying view that I'm trying to convince God to accept me. When the Bible says, He chose you before the foundation of the earth. See, if you convinced Him into accepting you, Maybe you hid something from him he didn't know, and you're afraid if he discovers it, he won't accept you anymore. You know when you apply for a job, you fill out your resume, you don't have on there the list of all your mistakes and failures. Well, I didn't do well this job, and I didn't do this one quite right, and I probably could have done a better job here. No, you portray yourself in the best light. Why? Because you want them to be, see you favorably, so they'll hire you. They can figure out your weaknesses later on. Just get me in the door. <laughs> and that's okay there, as long as you don't lie. But we bring that same attitude over to God, and we present Him with our resume. You can see that in Philippians chapter 2, uh, 3, excuse me. Paul presents his resume. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, born of the tribe of Benjamin. He lists his resume there of what he used to rely upon to be acceptable to God. Because he loved God. He just didn't understand what it took to be acceptable to God. And we bring that same attitude in because it's natural to the way the world functions and the way we were raised. But the Word says, you didn't choose Him and talk Him into accepting you. He chose you. I challenge some of you to just spend some time thinking about that. God chose me. Three words. God chose me. Think about each one of those words. God, who is He? What does he know? How well does he know me? The Bible says there's nothing hidden in front of him. That even the thoughts and intentions of your heart, he sees them.
And knowing all that about you, he chose you. You didn't fool him, and you're not fooling him today. Here's what that means. Then you don't have to feel the pressure of trying to live up to something so he'll continue to accept you. Because he knew everything you were ever going to do before he chose you. That needs to sink in. He chose you knowing things you don't know you're going to do. And he still chose you. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, we need to enter into his rest. Stop striving, trying to measure up to what he requires so that he'll love you and accept you. He loves you and accepts you or you wouldn't be here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now after Christ comes and people are born again, he's referred to as the firstborn of many brethren. But before you and I were born again, he was the only begotten of the Father. This verse is the gospel, and it contains the revelation that's down in the depths of God's heart for you this morning. I started taking that scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I started going to the Holy Spirit with this. And I would quote that scripture to him and said, you are charged, respectfully, you are charged with the responsibility of searching the depths of the heart of God and revealing to me what he's prepared for me. And the greatest thing that he's prepared for me that's down in his heart that I need to know is the love that he has for me. The greatest thing that God has prepared for you beyond anything else he has for you is his love for you. We think of love as kind of a passive thing. It kind of just accepts and it, you know, it's, it's passive and it just kind of, you know, smiles at people and is gracious. But the love of God is the most powerful force in the universe. It's what changes people's lives. It's what drove God the Father to reach over and take His beloved Son and send Him to this earth to die for your sins and my sins. What this verse is saying is what motivated Him was His love for you. For God so. The word so. I preached a Christmas service one time on the word so. So is a comparative term. It's telling, it's helping you how to measure something. How do I measure what God's love is like? How do I, because there's different levels of love. You understand that? I love ice cream. Coffee ice cream with chocolate pieces in it. I'm going to lose some of you in a minute. This, this is National Ice Cream Day. I was, yeah, she was going to point that out. <laughs> uh, don't go any further there. Come on. <laughs> I can feel the anointing starting to go down already. <laughs> Where was I? Love, okay, I know we're talking about love. <laughs> I'm just testing to see if you guys know. I'm getting 24 different answers. I'm getting, well, I said the Spirit of God is going to show you different things. <laughs> I love ice cream. 
and I love my wife, but they better not be the same thing. I can do without ice cream. <laughs> I can't do without her. Ice cream melts and eventually fades away. I need her. I'm joined to her. We're one. I better not mean by loving ice cream my love for God. So it's the same word. How do I know what word God's... Now, the word that's used here in Greek is agape, but it was used in many different contexts before the New Testament was written. So how do I know... See, words are containers. Some of you may get frustrated because I'll spend time on a word or especially go back and look at the original word, but words are containers. They contain emotion and depth and, 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 and truth and power. And what I, what I really do is I'll, when I study and meditate, it's like I get inside a word, that's what I'm doing right now, and I'll begin to see inside this word what God's showing me, and then I'll tell you what I see. Words are containers. Because inside of the heart of God this morning is something He wants to communicate to you. And the only way to do that unless the Spirit of God actually shows you a picture of it is to take words. Something goes off in here. My mind tries to find words that as best, as accurately as possible, describe what's going off in here, and then you hear those words, and your spirit now will try to take what your mind sees with those words and begin to form a picture down in your spirit. That's what this process is we're going through right now. And that's why I'll take a word and spend time in a word, because I'm trying to give your mind and this, your spirit more to work with than just saying God loves you. Or so God loves you. So the word so is a comparison to give us a measure of something. For God so loved the world, and here is the measure of that love. He gave something. See, it's one thing to sit back and say, I love you. Al, I love you. Sandy, I love you. Phyllis, I love you. I love you guys. Just love you. I love this church. You know, just really love this church. Love you guys. So good to see you this morning. Give you a hug when I see you. Love you. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I love you. And then go about my day. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we love somebody at a deeper level and we see a need, we can't sit there. We have to do something. Because this type of love acts. It does something. It has to because this kind of love is more concerned with you than it is with, with me. And so God saw you and me before we were born. Saw our condition and out of his love for us had to do something. He was compelled by his love and had to do something. And what he had to do was whatever it required, whatever it cost, he was willing to do and in abundance to make sure that what you needed was provided for. Before you ever did anything to deserve it. What was needed with somebody to die and pay for your sins and my sins. Because God is a righteous God. See, our idea as parents sometimes of love, it's not God's idea, but the world's idea of love is that forgiveness and love means that I'll look the other way sometimes. So you say to your child, you know, Johnny, if you touch that again, you're going to get a spanking. And now my word's going out. I don't want to have to give him a spanking. And I see him go to touch it again. So I turn around so I don't see it. Because that way if I see it, i got to give him a spanking. So I think I'm giving him grace because I'm pretending I didn't notice he did it. That's not grace. That's avoiding a responsibility. That's teaching the child the wrong thing. 
See, God is a God of grace and love and mercy, but he's also a God of righteousness and holiness and truth. See, that's not operating in truth. And so God had to find a way to not compromise his standard, which, by the way, is being perfect. God had to find a way to not compromise his standard and yet give that love and grace and mercy to us. And the only way that could be done was, the Bible tells us, was beyond anything the principalities and powers would ever imagine he would do. To take his beloved son, send him to the earth, and have him take our sins upon him so that God could pour his wrath out for your sin and my sin so that it would be satisfied and justice would be accomplished. That's why it says in Romans, I think it's chapter 4 or 3, that God, so that God could be the just and the justifier. God could justify us by sending his son, but he had to do it in such a way that he still remained in his own character just and righteous. See, God doesn't forgive you because he looks the other way and says, that's okay, I know you're trying hard. See, that's what we do. God, I, I fail, I'm sorry, but I'm trying hard. God doesn't forgive you because you're trying hard. This is just coming right up out of me now. So, God doesn't forgive you because you're trying hard. We need to renew our mind and think in accordance with God's word, not in accordance with human reasonings or the way our parents raised us or we've raised our kids. God doesn't forgive you because you're trying hard. I'm going to say that again because that's in our thinking somewhere in many of our cases. Well, God, I know you're going to forgive because I'm, I'm trying hard, so it's okay. No, it's not okay. God's still a righteous God and a righteous judge even for Christians. The difference is there's forgiveness. But that forgiveness is not based on your trying hard. That forgiveness is based on what Jesus paid for 2,000 years ago. The reason God can forgive your sin today is that sin was paid for 2,000 years ago. Never forget that all the freedom to walk with God and to be at rest is because... It's been paid for on your behalf. So he's the just. He's still just. But he found a way to be still just, but also be your justifier, the one who's made you just in his eyes. And the only way he could do that was to take his son, send him to this earth, to take on flesh, Walk among us as that first man did, Adam. To be exposed to temptation, to be exposed to sin as that first man was. But this one was not to sin. So Jesus came to this earth, took on flesh, and dwelt among us, John 1.14. It's interesting because when he's filled with the Spirit, which... I was going to get into this morning. We probably won't. When he's filled with the Spirit, the first thing the Holy Spirit does, which seems so strange, was to lead him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What's that all about? I thought Jesus told us to pray, as the kids learned this week, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. But the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness, the first thing he had him do, to be tempted of the devil. Why? Well, this is the explanation that I believe I've seen. There may be other good explanations. And it's this. Now you have the Son of God having taken on human flesh. The Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil, James chapter 1. Why can't he be tempted with evil? Because evil and temptation comes through the human flesh, through our senses. Everything you're tempted to do wrong 
comes at you initially through your senses. You may meditate on it, think about it, dwell upon it. That's what James goes on to say. And it begins to get hatched in your heart and then you act on it. But it always starts through something you've seen or you've heard or you've touched or you've smelt or tasted. God in heaven doesn't wear flesh. So sin has no access to him. But in order, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, in order, in 3 and 4, in order to be an effective high priest or representative for us, he had to take on flesh and face the same temptations you and I do. So that he could represent us and pay for our sin. Now we're talking about the word so. How far God was willing to go for you proves how much He loves you. This wasn't just some flip decision God made at some point. You know what? Feel sorry for them. Think I'll send my boy down there. Go die for them. Go to the cross. That's it. It's over. Because we read it quickly through the scriptures. But this was birthed in the heart of God back in Genesis, actually before the foundation of the world. See, God was not taken by surprise when Adam sinned. Oh, he sinned! What are we going to do? He knew it was going to happen. The plan was already in place. He took on flesh. And he had to know what it was like. So he's got flesh on now. He's now filled with the Spirit. Now he's got to learn how to control that flesh. Hebrews goes on to say, I think it's in 5, 5 or 7. It says that he learned obedience through the things he went through or suffered, some translations say. Now how can the Son of God learn anything? Well, he's learning how to handle flesh that he's never had to handle before. And so the Spirit of God leads him to the testing ground out in a wilderness where he does not eat or drink for 40 days. So he's putting the flesh to the ultimate test, depriving it things at once. That's what fasting's about. And then when he hungered, which is what happens at the end of that 40 days, Satan comes to tempt him. Now, I want to talk for a moment about what's at stake in these temptations. This is God's only plan to redeem us. Because it's going to take his son to come and do this, and he's only got one. So if this son fails, there's no plan B. So Jesus is standing before Satan at this moment of physical weakness and hunger when his flesh is crying out for food, speaking to him as yours does when I go a little long. (laughs) (laughs) Crying out to him. Eat, eat, eat. You're hungry. Do whatever it takes to eat. And Satan appears. You're hungry, aren't you? Jesus approached him the same way he'll approach you. You're the Son of God. Turn these stones into prove who you are. Jesus didn't argue. He didn't yell or scream. He simply responded with the Word of God. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, in the midst of all this pressure that my flesh is crying out to go ahead and eat, I will not do anything that my Father has not told me to do. He was learning obedience and control of his flesh in the face of temptation. Satan's temptation was to get him to yield to his flesh. 
if he had, he would have faced temptation the way you and I have, and he would have given in to it the way you and I have. And he would have lost his ability to die in your place for your sins. Because now, if he went to the cross, he would be paying for his own sin and could not pay for yours. So when he's dealing with the temptation and the pressure, it gets stronger, as it always does, to the place where Satan finally brought him up to the top of a mountain and said, see all the kingdoms of the earth? They're mine. I'll give them to you. See, Satan knew why he had come. He had come, Jesus had come to win back the authority over this realm that God had originally given to Adam and then Adam had surrendered in the garden to this same Satan. Jesus came to win that back and Satan tempted Jesus with an easier way to get it other than what God had ordained. Listen to me carefully. Satan says, look, we're up here. Nobody's looking. All you've got to do is bow your knee to me and I will give you what you came to win. In other words, you don't need to go to the cross and go through all that pain and agony. I'll give it to you. You just need to do this one. It's easy. So much easier than it is hanging on a cross and being stripped of your flesh and go through that horrible thing you're going to have to go through. This is so, listen carefully. This is the voice that speaks into your mind too. It's so much easier just for this moment. Just for this moment. To just, I know they call it compromise, but I'm just trying to help you out. Just, 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 nobody's looking. Just, just let it, boop, touch. And it's over, I'll give it to you. Anybody hear that voice? Oh, yeah. Jesus knew that if he did that, oh, Satan may have given him the kingdom, but his authority in this world then would have flown through, flowed through Satan, the very one he came to take it back from. That's what was at stake in these temptations. Your eternal destiny and mine and that of the whole world was at stake in the Son of God learning obedience to the things that he went through. And of course it goes on as he acts it out. But that's why Hebrews 4 tells us that therefore he is a merciful high priest High priest is somebody that represents you to God. He's your merciful representative to God. Therefore, it says in verse 16, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace and help in the time of need. Why? Because the one who represents you before God understands what it's like to be tempted because the verse before says he's been tempted in all ways as we have yet with him he did not sin all of that and more we could talk about is included in those two letters S-O so that's a sampling of how far and to what extent he was willing to come for you. And why did he do that? Because he loves you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and we'll just get into this, because we'll continue with this next week.
verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, because Romans 4 talks about that our salvation does not come by the deeds we do, but it comes by faith in what God has done for us. Therefore, having been justified by faith, made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access, access by faith. That's what we've just been talking about. We also have access to God by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's our future. So right now, we have peace with God. God's not angry at you. If you're in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, there's no anger or animosity between God, on God's end towards you. You may be angry at Him, but He's not angry at you. He took His anger out on that cross. So God's not angry at you. Some of you need to spend time in this verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom or through whom we have access, that's an open door, into this grace in which we now stand. And we exalt or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we stand now in the grace of God, but we have something to look forward to, and that is the revelation of the full glory of God when either He comes back for us or we get into heaven. Now let's go on and look at the rest of what He says here. And not only that, this is where Paul's thinking begins to change from ours, we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. I like the NASB there. It says proven character. And character develops hope. He's talking about maturing and growing through the things that we go through. But he's talking about, and what motivates us is the hope of what is to come. The hope that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. The hope that the full revelation of God's love for us and all that God's done for us, we're going to see in that day when we get there. That's the hope he's talking about here. Now look at this next verse. People have misused this verse. What they've said about it's true, but it's not what I believe this verse is talking about. This next verse says... Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out, poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who was given to us. And people use that verse, and it, the principle is true, they use that verse for the, the, the proposition that I can love you because the God, love of God has been poured out in my heart. And that's true, the love of God has been put in me because the Spirit of God is in me. That principle is true. But this verse I don't think is talking about that. Because what he's talking about is having confidence about something in the future, having confident hope. The word hope, by the way, in the Bible doesn't mean, oh, I hope so, the way we typically mean it. It means a confident, steadfast expectation. I know it's going to happen. I don't see it now, but I'm waiting for it because I know it's going to happen. That's what this word hope means. So Paul's talking about the hope that we have that God's going to bring us into His glory. And the reason he's saying we can have confidence and have that hope and that assurance is God's already taken His love for us and poured His love for us out in us when he poured into you his own spirit. The proof of that is the Bible says in a number of places that the Holy Spirit is the earnest, the down payment, the engagement ring, the deposit of God's, well, that God's going to do for us. So the Holy Spirit in you is God's tangible proof and evidence of everything He's promised you that is to come. And the greatest promise of what is to come is the full revelation of how much He loves you. And the hope that we can have, the confidence that we can have, that that's true, so I can face tomorrow, so I can go through what's facing me today, so I can do what I need to do. The confidence that I have that God loves me is He's already taken that love, and it's no longer just waiting in heaven for me to get there and say, look how much I love you, but He's poured His love out that He has for you into you now when He poured His Spirit into you. 
So we're not waiting for the revelation of God's love to drop out of heaven. Someday, it's in you now. The love that God has for you is in you now. When the Holy Spirit came to live in you, his first responsibility was to bring God's love for you into you. That's what this verse is saying. That other principle is true, but if you don't understand this aspect, you miss. That's why Paul wrote in the end of Romans chapter 8, I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor principality nor power nor things present nor things to come nor any created thing shall ever be able to separate me from the love of God that's been given to me in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't write those verses from the third floor of an ivy-covered seminary. I want to say cemetery, but seminary. He didn't write those as a theological principle. He wrote those as a result of having gone through all of those things. I'm convinced the devil threw his best at me. And I'm convinced that there's nothing he can do that can separate me from God's love for me. Why? Because that love for Paul had been poured out into his heart by the Holy Spirit. Thou art the Christ, the Son of living God that was given to me by God the Father that took on flesh like I wear, dealt with the things I have to deal with, became identified. Hebrews 2 says he became identified with us so that we may be called his brethren. This is God. While you and I are still miserable sinners. I was a good sinner. Some of you were bad sinners, but we were all sinners. We're all rebellious. We're all selfish, self-centered, doing our own thing. Gods of our own kingdom and so proud of it. When in reality, we were fools in God's eyes. God so loved you that whatever it cost to come and not just come and die, to be identified with you. Why? So that you could be his brother or sister. You begin to feel a little bit of the love that's motivated behind that. There's a scripture I want to take you to. I really want to get there, but we don't have time to get there today. So you have to come back next week. I mean, this, this is it. Oh, I can't wait. Mm. Woo! <laughs> I'm telling you. Verse 6, when we were still without strength... That means the inability to do anything for yourself. In due time, or at the appointed time, Christ died, listen to this, for the ungodly. Scarcely would a righteous man be willing to die, but perhaps he might die for a good man, he would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, having been reconciled, we will be, shall be saved by His life. Just because you're born again doesn't mean He stopped saving you. We're still kept alive by his life. 
The Bible says in Colossians, you are complete in Him. That's how God can still accept you with your own failures. Anybody have any failures or weaknesses? Okay. Well, the rest of you are liars. <laughs> God's able to accept you and me today. No matter how long you've been walking with Him, with still having your imperfections, because Christ makes up the difference for your shortcomings, because you were joined to Him, baptized into Him. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Having been saved by Him, we are still kept alive and walk in this life by Him. We'll read the rest of this, and we'll have to get to that good, really good scripture next week. And not only that, verse 11, notice this. In verse 10 it says, when we, 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 we don't think in these terms, but when you're apart from Christ, you're God's enemy. You may not have his picture on your wall with a target, but in God's perspective, you're his enemy. You're fighting against him. See, there's no neutral zone in this. There are only two kingdoms out there. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So you're in one or the other. There's no DMZ zone. Of course, the question today is, which kingdom are you in? This is not Faith Christian Center's teaching. This is not John Pfeffer's teaching. This is God's word that says, until we come to Christ... We were his enemy. That didn't mean you hated God, but from God's perspective, you were resisting him and you were fighting him. But what this tells us about God is he loves his enemies. This is why in Matthew, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those. Oh, I don't like this. I've had occasion to use this. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Pray for them. I don't like that in my flesh. Until I realize God goes on to say, do these things so that you may be like your father who is in heaven. In other words, he says, you're my son, act like me. I love my enemies, otherwise you wouldn't be here, he said. I'm a beneficiary of this kind of love, and so are you. And that's why he has a right to tell us to go give the same kind of love away because so that we may be acting like our Father who is in heaven. We'll, we'll get to that later on. While you were enemies, Christ Jesus died for you. And this is how God demonstrated His love. Not only this, but rejoice in God, verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you've now received the reconciliation. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does it mean that it was His Son He gave us? It's the measure of how much He loves you, that He would give His Son. Today what we've looked at is a little bit, because there's much more we could have looked at. It's a taste of what he was willing to put his son through. It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the father to bruise his son. Does that mean he's a, he's a child abuser? No. The only reason it pleased the father to see his son suffer is there was something of greater value to him that he was going to get as a result of his son being bruised. And what was of greater value to him than being willing to see his son suffer was you. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. And his son went through who he went to because of how much he loves you. Next week we'll finish this idea, I trust. I'll give you the scripture that's really good. And we'll go on to the second 
significance, that it's the son that he sent. Father, we thank you this morning. We can't begin to say anything really. I can't. Other than thank you. I pray, Father, that the words that we've all heard this morning would penetrate through the walls of our heart. Some of those walls are there because we've been hurt as a child or even as an adult by people. And we've built up walls to protect ourselves because we're afraid that if we dare to believe someone loves us again, that we'll be hurt again and we can't stand the thought of being hurt again. Some of us have walls because there's pride. We know the principle, but in our heart, we really think we're doing a pretty good job and have it. we're pretty much on the right course and we're doing, doing all right. And although we'll pay lip service to you and sing songs to you, in our heart of hearts, we really either don't know or have lost an awareness of how desperately we need you today. Whatever it is that's causing the wall that's around our hearts, my prayer this morning, Father, is by the, by the anointing of your Spirit that he would take the Word and break through those walls and that the light the hope and the joy and the peace of the revelation of your love for us would break through to our hearts. You've promised in your word that your spirit's been given to us to reveal these things. Holy Spirit, do what you were sent to do in Jesus' name.